During lockdown, I've been recording a series of conversations with a range of people discussing their journeys and life in 2020. The discussions have formed my new podcast series, Pearl Conversations. Joining me for this week's episode is racial justice campaigner and the founding director of the Forefront Project, Temi Emwale. We caught up in May to discuss her campaign work, the impact the Forefront Project is making, the criminal justice system and institutional racism in the UK. Hello, how are you doing? Good, thanks to you. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you for agreeing to do this. It's very, very kind of you. How are you doing? How, how's, how are things going? Things are overall good and overall I feel grateful. There have been some challenges over the last few weeks, but in light of everybody's situations, I think we yeah. can just be grateful for the good things. Yeah, and how has uh, COVID-19 like, affected like, the work that you do specifically? That's where the challenges have been coming. <laughs> so, we at Forefront work with young people who are affected by violence and the criminal justice system. So we have seen an increase in negative police encounters. We've had a lot more young people being arrested and just stopped and harassed in general. But outside of that, I think... I'm cynical and there are so many things that are wrong with the criminal justice system. I was already aware of those things, but I feel like this situation has really shined a new light on some of the areas of the criminal justice system. Just for example, none of the government guidance has been followed. The police stations, courts, they are just places that have risked people's safety and they have chosen to remand children to prison despite the fact that you know the government was told they need to release 15,000 people to have a shot at actually minimizing the risk of of the people that are currently incarcerated catching and spreading this virus and there are people who you know that we use the term lockdown we shouldn't because unless you've been to prison I don't think you actually understand what a lockdown is we are quarantined but we have so much freedom and being on lockdown when you're in prison actually means no communication it means 23 hours in your cell a day or more and that's children who are basically experiencing solitary confinement which is against their human rights it's a very very challenging situation especially if you have family members um, or even friends who are in prison at the moment because they're just not being really spoken about at all it's crazy because like in society, in recent times, we've been complaining about like being in lockdown, people or quarantine. We've been complaining about like being confined to like our house or like like a lot of people have gardens they can they can chill or go for a walk a day. Whereas in prison, like all especially these young children in prisons, they're literally confined to four walls. Um, and prison, uh, prison alongside one of the care, uh, alongside the care homes, are the areas in which, like the the virus is is spreading at a rate quicker than 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 the other areas. I think people in general in society, <laughs> we live in a very punitive society. Yeah. Most people have never been to prison. They've never visited one. They don't really understand <laughs> what happens inside prisons. I feel like if the British public had more of an understanding, they wouldn't be so quick to to um, confine people to those those establishments. But in truth, this situation has highlighted just how terrible some of these you know, places actually are. We have people that are defecating in buckets. They have no access to sanitary um, wow. products. They're not showering. Prison. They can't wash their hands. In and prison. we're talking about in the UK. I'm not speaking yeah. about somewhere else. I'm speaking about right here. That's something that you would assign to like completely different yeah like somewhere way down the economic ladder like in terms of countries that's like shocking to hear to hear about and that's happening that's that's, that's happening in prisons right and they surveyed some of the british public um in relation to coronavirus and just wanted to understand what people were thinking about and people said that they you know were more concerned about their pets than 
people in prison. And there were, I mean, there were a lot of other groups that came low. <laughs> Pets came pretty high, but I think that just is human beings that we're talking about. But I feel the criminal justice system is inherently invested in dehumanization. And when you start to dehumanize people, that's when it doesn't really matter the conditions that they, they are confined to. And that's why I personally am a prison abolitionist. I don't really believe that we should invest in these institutions. I think there are always alternatives. And I would like to see as a society us to explore those and build, build those. What would you say some of the alternatives are? So when we start speaking about prison abolition, I feel most people get kind of scared because, because that's a term so that, far away. Yeah, that's a term that I actually um, that I actually haven't come across before. Um, so I haven't, heard, I haven't heard someone say that, so I'm actually interested to find out more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn, please. So essentially, we're talking about completely eradicating the whole criminal justice complex and what we mean by that is we shouldn't be investing in policing in incarceration which doesn't just extend to prisons but it's also detention centers those kind of facilities and I think the reason is we can invest in alternatives that actually support people and transform people's lives and don't actually create further harm so if we can look at the way these establishments run and the whole spectrum, so I'm talking about everything from policing all the way to imprisonment and then probation, like at every stage of the criminal justice system, there is an infliction of, of harm. And it's not just on the people that are experiencing it directly, but on their families and wider communities. And when you come from a criminalized community, I think people don't necessarily see the way in which you know, the criminal justice system affects the, our everyday lives and that's our whole communities and then times that by a hundred. And so in that sense, the level of harm doesn't outweigh what the purposes of it is supposed to, to achieve. And uh, essentially, these, this system is supposed to make people accountable for harms that they have created, harms against individuals, harms against the state in general, and yet when you look at violence, just as one example, the state itself has the monopoly of violence. When is it legitimate to use? Is it okay for the police to, to brutalize people, but they'll never be held accountable for that? And that's okay because it's in the pursuit of justice. But you know, when, when a young person who may have been a victim of, of violence themselves carries a weapon, they can be sent on a mandatory minimum prison sentence to confinement. But you can, you know, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely a tricky issue. I think that's part of the argument why a lot of uh, Americans like love to hold their guns because against the perspective like tyranny of 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 the American government. So how how would you how would you suggest people like people who do commit crimes like in that prison abolitionist like kind of system or or state like how would they then be dealt with so we're talking about investing in transformative justice which is about finding ways to hold people accountable and repair harm um, that don't involve the criminal justice system and so i think in some ways when we look at communities that have been over policed and overly criminalized we can see a movement towards trying to use alternatives and that might mean not necessarily calling the police in certain situations those are things that have just kind of happened and evolved and that's i think because people have recognized that when there's a system like this that does inflict harm you have to weigh up is there going to be more harm generated from calling the police in this situation than good and that's not a position that people should be put in when it comes to evaluating your safety. This is a service, just as one example, that's supposed to protect you. And if you don't feel like they are going to do that, then there's a problem there. But I think more broadly, when we think about the privatization of this system and the ways in which people actually make profit from this system that inflicts harm, that is... Um, something that is in just inherently wrong like we shouldn't be able to make money from putting people in prison and yet we have private companies that do exactly that in this country and abroad yeah, so the whole, 
the whole private prison system is is actually messed up like, most people don't aren't aware of that or is something they would associate with america and think yeah i think it's it's, it's it's inherently like immoral uh like to to profit over like people going to prison is just is i i think it's it's it's, it's terrible um, if we look at all the money that's invested in this system overall at every stage and we sought to take that money and invest it actually in communities in education in healthcare, um, and just in support in general i think you would actually see that a lot of the crime would actually go away and that's something that is scary to people i think as a concept because it's forcing people to reflect and consider what actually is crime? How does crime actually come about? And who is actually being wronged in these situations? And I think a lot of the time we we can look at all of the research, but it's, it's not even just about the research. We can see that there are always correlations between disadvantage, between poverty, between people who have been hurt and have been victimized, hurting and victimizing other people. And so where's the support for people earlier on and the prevention that can actually stop because that's the, that's aftercare, which kind of doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so the abolitionist movement is is not talking about okay, tomorrow we'll close every prison and that's it. It's something that we have to move towards. But I think at every stage, what it requires for us to even get to a world in which we wouldn't rely on a criminal justice system is completely transforming our understandings of justice in the first instance, of peace and peace and safety, and also of freedom. Because, you know, I would like to say that I've been to many prisons and I've spoken to many people that are currently incarcerated and a lot of them didn't feel free when they were not imprisoned. And then we have to speak about what does it actually mean to be able to thrive in society when so many of us are living in communities that are set up to fail, you know? Uh, yeah, I, there's that common phrase that it takes a village to raise a child. Then, like earlier today, I heard like another flip on that, which was, if if young people don't feel a part of that village, they burn it down. Uh, which is, I think, I found like quite powerful in terms of like trying to be part of a, a society or community that is like inclusive for for all people. And I think the lottery of birth is a crazy thing, like no one chooses the circumstance in which they were born into no one chooses the circumstance in like their surroundings and like where you're born into has a huge impact has huge ramifications on like what then happens for, for 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 the rest of your life and i think sometimes people can often take that for granted I would like to talk a little bit more about the front, the forefront project. Um, so you started that when you were just sixteen. That's right. It was a while ago now. <laughs> and how how old are you now? Sorry, twenty four. It was eight years ago. So yeah. wow, like that's to start such a project at that age is quite it's quite like unusual. Like, talk me through like how you the steps you made, what what led you to create the project, and so on. It's interesting because I'll always be asked this question, but what I thought were the reasons at the time um, when I did first set it up upon, you know, growth and personal evolution and just having a deeper understanding of of issues. I realized that, you know, there was a catalyst, but I'd been experiencing these things throughout my whole life. And that's true of most young people. And so for me, you know, the catalyst was the murder of my friend, my childhood friend, Marvin, who was shot and killed a month before his 18th birthday. And I was 15 at the time, trying to make sense of grief and loss, which I think is just a human struggle that everybody can relate to in some way. But I feel when there's a violent element there's an additional layer of pain also. And I think, you know, that suffering is kind of prolonged when you have a police investigation, um, court case, media interest. 
something for me that really also made my suffering more deep at that time was that, you know, he was labeled as a gang member by the media, by the newspapers, you know, they just said, this is within 24 hours of, of his death that he was killed in a gang feud. And I don't know where they got that information or how they can even make such a judgment, but we see that determination made in many young people's cases. And for me, that was the start of my inquiry into these media narratives and the why people are so invested in them. Because as a 15 year old, reading the Evening Standard and seeing my friend's face on the front of it and looking, I was sitting on a trade when I was reading that paper and I was seeing other people flick the page and I was just thinking no one cares <laughs> because they've just written his life off really and made nobody want to care because it's like he had it coming to him or that's the way that they kind of framed it. How can they do that to a child? Like how dare they do that? I was so angry and I think to be honest, a lot of that frustration and anger was what, what actually drove me forward to want to campaign in the first instance. And so Forefront definitely started as a campaign around young people's experiences of violence and young people being heard and young people being supported. And following on from that, um, soon after, with a lot of ideas I had about things that could be done differently to support, at the time, my peer group, who were experiencing and who were exposed to these this high level of violence, I just wanted to to start doing something, and so we became a delivery organisation and started delivering programmes to support young people who've been affected by violence. And I feel like over the years, you know, the work has just grown and transformed into something that's quite holistic, and that's something that I'm really proud of. And my personal understanding of this issue has has evolved and I'm proud of that also. I feel it was difficult for me being so young and starting something. I was going through my own journey because really Marvin's death was one experience of violence that I had, but my eyes were open to all the other ways violence had affected my life. And that was like a painful realization at like 17, 18, I sat down and I thought, how much violence have I actually experienced like from birth until now? And then I started to think about all my friends and all the things that I've seen and we've seen and everything from domestic violence, sexual violence, community like violence that was happening in our communities. And it's like, that's all layered experiences of, of conflict. It's not one incident. It's never one incident, you know? And how do we start to create services that can support us when we've experienced so much and that when we're so traumatized? And that was my journey out of desensitization. I think most people are desensitized to violence and that's a coping mechanism. I, I, I completely agree. And I think, I think also a lot of people are desensitized to violence due to the way that it's reported. Um, like the, the media narrative around violence, specifically when it's to do with black people, it's, it's very like, blanket brush like one 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 swipe and like the the me the the media the way they narrate and create stories and the newspapers new pa news pages about like violence in like black communities in contrast to white communities it's <laughs> it's literally ebony and ivory in the literal sense exactly. it's like, the racialization of this issue is why there is so little infrastructure for support. And that's something that, you know, at Forefront, we're very direct and bold about, you know, more than 90% of our, of the young people we support come from black or ethnic minority backgrounds. More than 80% identify as black, African and Caribbean themselves. And um, more than 30% are Muslim. We're talking about criminalized groups of people here um, and not just them as young people, but their whole communities. And, and what does that actually mean? When I even started speaking about gangs as, as a narrative rather than as something that I think, you know, is a reality in a way, it's because what's been manifested out of people's fear and not understanding something is, is also, it's resulted from an investment in a narrative that's hundreds of years old that seeks to align and associate blackness with violence. Um, the notion that 
violence is affecting the black community because black people are inherently more violent. That's a narrative that this country wants to perpetuate. And that's a narrative this country wants to, to sell to young black people. And that has an impact on the way they form their identity, truly if that's all you're being told. I mean, like there was research carried out by Cardiff University that highlighted, you know, 60% of the time when a label is used to refer to, to young black men and boys is the gang label. Um, seven in 10 stories um, about young black men and boys are to do with crime um, compared to only four in 10 when we're speaking about, you know, white males in particular. And that research is very old. So, I would be really interested to see if they were to carry out a similar yeah. piece of research on the way the media has been conducted over the last 10 years. I think we would be quite alarmed. And what, when you do that, what does that mean? So when I'm talking about prison abolition, I'm talking about in this country, the fact that the youth estate, the secure estate for children under the age of 18, more than 50% are from black or ethnic minority communities, more than 50% in the whole of, the, of, the, of England and Wales, you know, that is something that we need to talk about specifically because when I'm talking about the impact of prisons, it's disproportionate, it's disproportionately impacting our communities. And it's not just about violence, but violence becomes a tool and a way in which we can, we can justify the criminalization and policing of specifically young black people. And then we can imprison them for low level drug offenses um, and the war on drugs is a whole other debate, but it's so, it's so connected to this issue. Even when we look at stop and search, they will say, you know, knife crime has gone up, we need to increase stop and search. But a majority of stops are for drugs, more than 60%. Something doesn't add up. But mm. when you start understanding the, whether it's from this country or even in America, you know, we know that it's even more disproportionate. For, for young black people in this country than it is in America. I mean, people were shocked to find that out, but really, are you shocked? If you see it day to day, if you come from a community like mine, where you see the way we are policed every single day, it's not really a shock or a surprise. And the Forefront Project is based in Colondale, right? So we started in Graham Park Estate. That's because right. that's the estate where I grew up and where I lived, but our focus is about changing the way this country deals with violence. So whilst we deliver services um, in a hyper-local way in Graham Park Estate, we are advocating um, and campaigning at a national level and supporting young people from across London and also other cities to, to do that, to actually be involved in shaping the way that this country deals with violence as an issue. But I think for us, it's really important that we reframe that conversation. You know, it's not about reducing violence, it's about building peace. When we look at building peace, we're talking about what is making young people feel safe. And when the services or the institutions that are supposed to do so, be that policing or, or education, when they're not doing that, then the conversation is not about reducing violence specifically, because yeah. these state organizations have a role to play in perpetuating it they don't take responsibility or accountability for that, we're not really ever gonna see anything change. Young people with lived experience of this violence need to be shaping the way that it's understood. Otherwise, what's the point? It's never gonna be different. And that's what I think we don't see enough of. It's how do we empower young people to take leadership and to lead and drive change? And I wish that more organizations had that focus. Violence is an international issue, yeah. so for us, it's about linking and collaborating with our peers who are abroad, who are fighting the same struggle, whether that's in America or in Brazil or in other places around the world, is definitely about thinking global and acting local. Have you seen progress, like from once once you started, like to where to where it is now? Is is that do you see like a projection of hope, or do you think we're still not answering the same questions that were that were that we were faced with back then? At a societal level, I feel so much has to change. But when, you know, with the young people we support, of course I feel hope. I definitely feel hope because there's something about helping people to understand their value in and of themselves, the, the power they have to shape and change the world and using their 
oftentimes really painful experiences to do that like the resilience of our communities how can you not feel hopeful it's like we've been through so much and yet we're here still thriving and still like despite everything um making things happen that people wouldn't even be able to believe with all of this weight on our shoulders with all of this trauma in our bodies um still doing unbelievable amazing things and i think it's about helping people to understand that we need that space to heal as well and so that's what we're advocating for what does healing actually mean for us and how can we create as many spaces that enable that healing as possible and still fight to make sure that this issue doesn't become another intergenerational battle yeah. of struggle. Like I've seen you and I've seen other people in this field talk about the dealing with this issue as a public health issue. Have you had any, <laughs> you smiled there. <laughs> you know what? Do you know why I smiled? Because I think it's just another one of those words and phrases that have now just become meaningless. And I say that because when I was younger also, and I first started to understand or gain an understanding of what a public health approach actually was, and I traveled to America and I traveled to some other places around the world to, to get a better understanding also. And for me, I think the most powerful part of it was how do we centralize healing and actual healthcare? How do we actually support people holistically um, to transform to transform their lives and to transform their communities? And that's a journey of healing. Um, when you have a conversation about public health, then you start talking about trauma-informed. What does a trauma-informed service mean? Well, it means that people are aware of trauma and are using trauma as a lens through which to understand people's behavior and the way people interact with one another. If you have, as an example, the police, the Metropolitan Police Service as one example, claiming to, one, be implementing a public health approach, and two, be trauma-informed, I just think the whole meaning of those terms has just been reduced to insignificance because you can't just use a phrase because you think it's popular without one substantiating what it actually means and un helping people to understand when you say that, what is it in practice that you're actually doing? And two, when you're clearly inflicting harm and not holding yourselves accountable for that harm, how can you be trauma informed? Three, when with, and I'm using the police as one specific example, but within your own infrastructure, when you're not supporting people who are first responders, oftentimes are facing traumatic situations themselves, when they're not supported, they don't even access, you know, the type of supervision they would need at a clinical level to deal with some of the things that they're experiencing, then how can we rely on those people to protect us? And, you know, the claim that is trauma-informed, I just... So I've I've strayed away from from the public health because I've just seen I've just I'm seen social distancing for public health. <laughs> and and you know exactly this situ this current situation more than anything. Yeah. Let's really talk about public health now that we've been experiencing yeah. this pandemic and what does public health mean? I'm talking about institutions that did have that observed no guidance to to prevert, to preserve public health. Um, claiming to be trauma-informed, but you've built extra cages rather than releasing people that were eligible for release. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very interesting, especially, as you said, like, observing how things are going during this pandemic, because, like, we, often we talk about the trauma about the victim, and this is something I'd actually like to ask you about um, later on. We talk about the trauma around the victim, but, like, as we've seen in COVID, in the, with the coronavirus, especially within the NHS, the amount of doctors, nurses, uh, key workers, support staff who've experienced trauma within dealing with that situation and experienced a um, number of different forms of either depression or, or like mental fatigue, etc. Like they're crying out now for. For help they're crying out now for uh for, for support but in the same way like you obviously deal with a lot of people going through the victims of of crime you deal with people who've who've either been severely injured or like potentially on the on, you know on life support like what support 
do you have for yourself of the people who work within the forefront project to help you guys out as well i'm really really glad you asked that first of all before i talk about that i just wanted to clearly say the victim perpetrator binary is not something that we really like to to use as a frame within our work and the reason for that is because most of the young people we support have been victims of serious violence some of them technically according to that framework would also be considered perpetrators but because they're considered perpetrators they aren't receiving any support that you would afford to victims and also connecting back to what we spoke about before with the racialization so often what we see is victimhood being denied especially to young black people um, and there's a variety of reasons for that but i think that binary between victim and perpetrator helps to prevent people from actually accessing the support they they need if we were to take a a, a holistic view of them as one person um, so i think that's that's the first one i would say in terms of support for you know, people who are delivering support services for people that have been impacted by violence. The first thing I want to say about our sector is that a lot of us have come to this sector because of our own pain. And that's where, why we've got so much passion, because we have experienced hurt as a result of whether it's us personally or being connected to it, and we want to help others. And so, as that as a starting point, as a sector, we don't really have the infrastructure required to support the people that want to come in and do this work. And that's an issue. The second thing is because services are not funded as they should, the infrastructure is not funded as it should, even to have, for example, clinical supervision. That's something that unless you're not, unless you have the right amount of funding, it's gonna be expensive for you to do that, but it should be a prerequisite. You know, it's something that's essential for people's well-being. But going further, you know, I'm talking about the level of understanding that people have. And I think within this sector, there are only some organizations that are actually supporting young people who have that level of vulnerability, that level of marginalization and those actual experiences because it's become even a, a way to get funding. There are a lot of groups that, you know, claim to work with those individuals that are not necessarily doing so. And, and, I, and I think the reason I wanted to say that is because ultimately some of the services that are designed to support, support staff um, are not really designed in the way that they need to be for the level of trauma that these staff are experiencing you know if you have a service that's supporting even a hundred young people that are in crisis and that could be at any point a victim of of serious violence and you could be called to the hospital or the police station or you know that's a very different service than if you're operating a nine-to-five drop-in youth club you know it's yeah. the level the lack sorry of investment in this sector is another way in which you know the young people with these vulnerabilities are told that they don't matter because staff will burn out you know at four have you, have you experienced that have i experienced burnout personally oh within your organization from your staff not yet i hope i hope not ever but that's about creating the infrastructure that's required and i think yeah. it's, it's challenging it is really challenging and you know even just recently, like a few months ago, a young person that, that we support, that we supported was, was tragically killed. And dealing with grief personally, um, and then also professionally, because now you have a whole group of young people that you're supporting that are directly affected by you yourself are experiencing bereavement. What does that actually mean? And how do you cope and deal with that? I mean, that's something that was really really difficult for us and it's something i know other organizations have experienced as well and so we're so close we're so close to it my point around advocacy is i really think that people need to be supported to have the right understanding um, and also to to deal with their own issues and i'm saying to make sure that they're not coming to this work or to do this work to try and resolve those issues that they have had the support yeah, yeah. but that people that are passionate have a way to 
to make sure they can go through that process and be supported through that process and then when it's safe to to come into this work and do it but the truth is the honest truth is this is an unregulated sector there's no quality marks there's no qualifications that you have to have there's very little checks and balances around that and i think again if we were to actually say what's essential to to secure people's safety you would have to to have that infrastructure in place but that gets to a, another another part of this process is when you're talking about you know the fact that it is racialized and the disproportionality and disparity in terms of who's who's experiencing violence who wants to come through and support those people what are the organizations that are you know black-led and being a black-led organization how likely is it that you are going to be you know funded compared to some of the other organizations that have amassed a huge infrastructure and are always trusted and are really always invested in so it's hard for us with our understanding when you have you know we're using a racial framework through which to do this work it's identity-based work yeah. and yet when there's no funding to do that if you can't even say racial justice is one of our core aims and be funded to do that work then already there's going to be a dis a disparity there and who can build infrastructure who's enabled to do that and who is not so what what, what would you say like your dream for the forefront project is so if you if you were to look back if you were to go forward 10 years and you look back on the work you've done in the last 10 years what would you what would you have liked to achieve through the forefront project empowering a generation of young people who have experienced some really painful things not only to create change within their own lives and to thrive as individuals but to be committed to creating change in their local communities and across the world and when i say that i mean i would like to see the systems changed i would like to see the criminal justice system not the the frame that we want to use through which to understand this issue um, i would like to see young people leading that and you know i think what becomes really difficult is is one thing to say as an organization we want to build peace but we do want to do that, but the more important goal for us is we want to empower people to do it. We want to empower young people and the communities that they come from to be able to do that. And our vision is, you know, for a world where young people and their communities don't experience that violence, but not just that, that they're safe and that they, they can realize their dreams and their potential, that they actually feel free. There's a lot that needs to be done to achieve that. And we're, we're, we're only just getting started. Another question. If uh, your mate Boris Johnson was to call you Why up... did you call him my mate? <laughs> Wait, sorry. Why did you call him my mate? <laughs> I knew I'd probably get that sort of reaction. <laughs> well, if um, the right honourable Boris Johnson was to call you up now and be like, I'm not even going to try to do his accent. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but if he was to call you up and, uh, and say, oh, Temi, I want, I want to get you involved... Um, want to help you reshape how we do things like what would what would be your like three or four point plan or three or four steps that you'd like to take to create the kind of change that you're looking for within this area i why that would never happen is because at its root our organization is concerned with addressing the root causes and where we see austerity policies that this government and you know over the last 10 years has been really invested in in driving forward that would be the first thing that i said you know that's a no that's a no from me and if you want to actually support people to thrive there's no way you can strip the state the way that they have done and expect people to be able to to do that i don't think they do expect people to do that i don't think they they want people to thrive and and therefore you know we would have not that much to talk about because i think the marginalization is one thing, the, the inequality and that's been created by not just austerity, but by hundreds of years of, of widening that gap between the, the really rich and the really poor is something that, you know, we're not gonna address this issue without addressing the, the inequality. And also it's about, it is about race. It is about the racism that is woven into the very fabric of British society. It's within every, I don't want to single out one, it's within every institution 
And so when we're talking about young people that have been impacted by education, by social care, by, by policing and criminal justice, it's, it's in every walk of yeah. life, especially <laughs> politics. Yeah, the thing about this issue is that it's it's actually a very complicated issue because it's interconnected and exactly. it's as you said interwoven into so many different different issues. Like they all like like hold hands and have an impact on 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 how we can like try and find a way forward with this. Well, that's the problem. The desire for a four point plan already you you have failed because. It's going to take more than a four-point plan if you're committed to actually addressing it. Most people are not, and they would rather score political points. I'm not singling, singling out the current Conservative government. It's, it's at a regional level. It's at a local level. It's much easier to say, we're going to do this for a short time period and get our political points for doing it, rather than actually investing over 20 years and saying, we're actually going to make a change to the next generation. Like there hasn't been that political willingness. And that's why it has felt like Groundhog Day for more than two decades with hundreds of children in this country being murdered by other children. Literally, I just think if, if potentially the, the people that were impacted the most actually mattered to the people in power, there would be a very different outcome. But if it doesn't look like your child, then a lot of the people, you know, don't really feel they have to care. And that's, that's part of the problem as well. Uh, on a slightly lighter note, I uh, saw that you met President Barack Obama. How was, how was that experience? That was, it was kind of weird because um, there was a group of us and there was, there was a lot of security. I just remember there was like- Did, did you know that you were gonna meet him or was yeah, it- Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. no, no, I, I knew, I knew. Um, as an experience, I think, it was something that I really wanted just to ask one question. You know, he was involved in community organizing when he was younger. He has yeah. a legal background. I studied law as well. There was the, there were those kind of elements that I kind of wanted to, to ask him about. So I asked him a question just as, as what he knows now as president, if going back to when he was an activist, would he change anything in his approach to, to be able to impact policy at, at a national level based on his kind of current understandings and he spoke a little bit more about about activism and about the things that he thought was important as, as a community activist he also did speak about self-care I'm glad that you brought that up as well but it was quite a fleeting encounter so you know you got the picture though you got the picture <laughs> well, I would like to be I would like to be president of our he's, he's, a, he's a cool cool man but I would like to touch on that bit about like community like activism like grassroots grassroots community work that obviously that's at the very core of what you do like how important in general do you think that that type of work is to like foster change to to force change to create a better society for I think it's the backbone of almost every movement that we've ever seen really I think the problem is that there is an investment in educating um, activists. That's the truth. We don't teach activism from a young age. We don't seek to do that. Well, I say we, I'm talking at a societal level, but I think yeah. the powerful things about, about creating movements and building movements is when you can invest in young people's political education. And for me, I think when I was about 18, I first got involved in the Justice for Mark Duggan campaign. That was probably the first time I'd been in anything that I, that felt political to me, even after I had set up Forefront. Um, obviously it was around deaths in police custody and around policing and criminal justice more broadly about accountability. And I, I felt like I was just thrown into it. Um, my eyes were open and I was just wondering, why did I know any of this stuff before? Like, why didn't I know how many people had been had been killed by by the police? Why didn't I know how little like infrastructure there was to support these families that like, they don't even have access to to lawyers, you know? And yet, in this specific example, it's like taxpayers are funding the the legal teams of of police officers, and they have access to the very best support. And yet, you know, families can't even get simple questions answered about why why this has happened and the truth. And just for me. There was so much I wish I had learned sooner. And 
that was for me one of the moments that made me appreciate okay how do we embed activism within within the work because it's to do with identity it's helping people understand their history basically because how can you understand what it means to be for example black in britain today if you don't have an understanding of, of activism like that's our community that's our heritage so there's no way to do that identity work without community activism being a core and central theme within that and that's part of how we build those intergenerational bonds and that's something that's always going to be powerful so I think how important do I think it is? I think it's essential. I think it's essential. And I wish more organizations in this sector that were discussing the issues of violence would discuss them within that framework also. That the notion that actually being involved in activism is something that can be transformational for people, something that can change their worldview, their perspective, and help them to, to transform their own lives, really, to feel empowered enough to do that. And that, that the idea that creating change in your community and within your society, having a life of purpose, is something that helps people to, to feel connected to who they are, who they want to be. What's more powerful than that? True. Um, I think a lot, part of the, like... I don't know if it's a misconception or I think what makes people like draw away from like community work or grassroots works is the feeling that whatever they do regardless isn't gonna make a difference or whatever they do do regardless like is not actually gonna have an impact on what's on what's going on like what would you say to to those type of people who hold that view I would say wouldn't you rather fight? What's the alternative? True, yeah. Looking around and saying the world is, yeah. look how bad it is and it's never going to change and I'll just sit on my ass and do nothing. Like, what's the alternative? If you don't look around and see, wow, things really need to change, if that's not enough to stand up, I don't know. And I want to say, I want to, let me, let me qualify that also because I know that with the level of trauma that, is inflicted by these systems the way that impacts us it can lead to, to apathy because that's a coping mechanism also it's hard to look at the world and the, and the way that it currently is and and feel inspired to to get to create a change because the the scope of it the weight of that challenge is so significant so i don't want to belittle the fact that for people's emotional well-being and health there is a sense of like ignorance is bliss in a way and it's it's easier to to not be involved because when you bear witness to pain when you're close to pain and you you have to see it and feel it it's it's heavy it's not easy activism is not easy but i think the empowerment that you can feel from even supporting and empowering other people to feel like change is possible to have a glimmer of hope in their life and for the future that's something that's an unparalleled pleasure in terms of fulfillment in terms of what life is actually about so for me it's not that it's going to be easy but the benefits of it rewards. the rewards just they're so they just outweigh feeling fulfilled is something that if our society actually was structured around fulfillment i think there'd be a lot less pain people mm -hmm. didn't feel so like undervalued and like the whole life is about work that doesn't matter or doesn't mean anything like i would you'd feel like you don't have any purpose then i'm not surprised those people wouldn't have hope <laughs> you know the last the last topic i'd like to talk about is just like the role of like education like how empowering that can be like i know speaking from like my own personal experience like growing up my parents like drill down like the importance of education i know many people are are born into environments where like to be educated is is almost a a privilege rather than rather than like their right like how how empowering have you found like helping in young individuals young um, teenagers, children, like on their on their road to education, and also on a, on a personal level. So I see learning as a lifelong journey, and I think for me, 
I've learned more outside of the formal structured British education system than, than I've learned within it. And I think that's a shame. And I think that's true of many young people. I think for many young people, they are turned off the idea of learning because of their experiences with the mainstream British education system. And again, I spoke about institutional racism within society, of course, it's well embedded within the education system. And that, you know, that in and of itself just means that it's a place of that can marginalize people and that can exclude people. And I'm not just talking about school exclusions. I just mean even not being able to learn things that are true to you and that empower you and that not being part of seen as part of a core curriculum, you know? So I think for me, it's been so powerful to create something, a vehicle which serves to educate people about themselves, their history, and so many subjects, whether it's psychology or sociology or, or politics, law, um, I think we don't ha it's not structured in the same way. They don't have to take an exam, but they're learning more than, than, they, than they would have. A lot of the young people we support have been excluded from mainstream education. And some of them we've worked with within the alternative provisions and then also within the community. And I think part of why I'm so proud of the way that Forefront has evolved is because we've built ourselves now into a position where we have the space um, and the capacity to, to really support people to, to learn. Um, and that is the most powerful thing, but it's about being able to apply that in practice. It's not just about being, you know, reading a book, although we do a lot of reading and we play a lot of chess and we do all of those kind of things that people, you would never see these young people doing in their schools, but they have to do it if they want to come forth. And that's the truth. They all, they all do. And they really, really enjoy it. So I think one of the most rewarding things for me has been young people saying that they didn't learn in school. They didn't like school. And yet they really love learning now. Like what can be more powerful than that? That's, that's really beautiful. And for me personally, my own experience of the education system, I was always somebody that enjoyed learning. I did thrive in school, but I also did feel marginalized by it at various points. And, you know, I feel like we were at uni at the same time. I think you're like a year older than me. So when you were at SOAS, I was at LSE for a few years, we would have crossed over. And coming from Graham Park Estate and then going to somewhere like LSE where everything was very textbook and the things I'm reading about, um, I'm seeing, you know, I studied law. So for example, we'll be learning about joint enterprise and I'm thinking, well, I know people that are in prison for this. And at the same time in that lecture, I was sitting at the back and I was seeing people shopping and, you know, I'm thinking, <laughs> these are real people. This is my real life. I felt really alienated by that experience, but it was part of my journey to, to be able to take that information and present it to people in a, in a way that, that was accessible to them and to, can be a tool that they can use to actually create change. So I'm glad that I did it, but I just wanted to highlight that at every level from primary to, to higher education, there's marginalization. And that's because these curriculums, these, this education has been designed to, you know, to do that, in my opinion. Temi, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please let me know what you think and what you're enjoying about Pearl Conversations in the reviews.